This is a special episode of On Shifting Ground, our sister podcast to the Commonwealth Club podcast. You can find On Shifting Ground, the Commonwealth Club podcast, and Climate One wherever you get your favorite podcasts. All are presented by the Commonwealth Club Podcast Network. This is On Shifting Ground. I'm Ray Suarez. It's been two months since the Hamas attack on Israeli soil, and except for a week-long ceasefire for a hostage exchange, there's been little expectation fighting will stop in the Gaza Strip before the new year. For Israelis, October 7th is the latest reminder of just how fragile their security is. And for Palestinians, another war in Gaza will set back their people for generations. This recent conflict will eventually end, but what hope is there that the fighting can end for good? Coming up, we turn to two peace activists, one Palestinian, one Israeli, and they share why they maintain hope for a peaceful two-state solution. You're listening to On Shifting Ground from World Affairs and KQED. I'm Ray Suarez. In more than four decades in the news business, I've covered diplomatic maneuvering in wartime and covered communities struggling to survive humanitarian crisis. There are similarities in the stories, extreme poverty, high death tolls, and often a lack of hope. From the recent reporting out of the Gaza Strip, it's hard not to see the desperation as millions of Palestinians will be affected by the resumption of fighting in southern Gaza. Maybe you've looked on from North America as Hamas and Israel have slashed away at each other in recent weeks, with the death toll mounting, protesters taking to the streets around the world. And you felt a little stuck, like this is simply intractable, insoluble, never-ending, and who could blame you? I've wondered if the people who are really trying to shoot their way to peace need each other to continue. What keeps that from leading to despair is this thought— people who really believe peace is possible in that difficult corner of the world really need each other too. Every year, the Schengen Peace Foundation recognizes people across the planet working for a more peaceful world, looking for multicultural understanding, trying to establish dialogue, and they award the Luxembourg Peace Prize. The latest laureates include a Palestinian, Ali Abu Awad, and an Israeli, Gershon Baskin, Awad is the founding leader of the Tahir Palestinian National Nonviolence Movement. And Dr. Baskin is the Middle East Director of the International Communities Organization. Their goals, as of early October, may seem further away than ever, going back as far as the partition of the British Mandate of Palestine after World War II. I spoke with them over Zoom in early December, following the week-long ceasefire between Israel and Hamas, They both called in from Jerusalem. Peace activist, Luxembourg Peace Prize laureate, Ali Abu Awad, welcome to Unshifting Ground. Thank you. Thank you for having us. And Luxembourg Peace Prize laureate, Gershon Baskin, great to have you with us. Thank you very much. Ali, is your life story really a product, an outcome, an illustration of the conflict between Israel and Palestine in these last decades? Yeah, Well, I grew up in this reality. I was born to a refugee family, born to a very political family from my mother's side. She was one of the leaders of BLO. 
I served years in Israeli prison with my mother, actually. And the first encounter with nonviolence was in prison when we both participated in a hunger strike for 17 days to see each other. And then I start realizing the power of nonviolence and the power of my humanity as a best weapon more than any weapon. And then in 2000, I lost my brother in the conflict who was shot and killed by Israeli soldiers. And it was hard to choose the path of reconciliation and nonviolence, especially after feeling victim and being victim of this political reality. And then I realized that the only crime that I have to face is the um, injustices by violence. And I have learned that we both, Jews and Arabs, Israelis and Palestinians here, has to release ourselves from the prison of victimhood and to take responsibility for the future of this land and its people. And there is one fact, whether we like it or not, these two conflicted identities has to find a political management where they can be served and practiced in a fashion that no one has to pay the price of his life. I'm leading today a movement called Taghir, the Palestinian National Nonviolence Movement, and it's all about adopting nonviolence as an identity for my people and as a responsible movement that will take responsibility by actions to serve people's lives and people's identities with full recognition of our legitimate right as two different people that has not to be the same to be able to live together. But making that choice, does that mean you have to explain yourself to people on both sides? Are there fellow Palestinians who say, well, yeah, that's fine, but that no longer fits the situation that we're in? Are there Israelis who don't accept your good faith because there's just too much fighting and too much suffering and too much killing and they doubt your sincerity? Yeah, I have been saying halfway to the solution is the right description to the problem. I think we still describe the problem by ignoring the other. And this is where we are stuck. The first recognition of both identities is a painful path that both sides has to take. Yes, definitely there are people who are rejecting what we are doing, not just me, even Dr. Baskin and others, because it's painful, you know. Solutions are painful. Surgery is painful, but it will provide a solution to the problem. And I understand where this comes from when people reject what we do, not because they are not human, but the fear is taking over everyone. Anger is taking over everyone. The life condition and lack of equality on the ground, we don't have equal conditions. We are equal as human beings, but we are not equal in a political system that will provide a service of security, dignity, freedom for all the people of this land. So the nonviolence that I'm approaching and the solution that I'm talking about is not about giving up who you are or giving up your identity, but it's the first step to start arguing behaviors more than identities. 
Occupation is a behavior that has to end. Violence is a behavior. The mentality and the psyche of both people are not violence, I promise you. We're not fanatics. But we are stuck with the life conditions and deep emotions that lead us to violence without activating our mind that whether we like it or not, both sides are here on this land. It's their destiny and they're going to be here forever. Uh, Gershon, your life illustrates a part of this story very well, too. You are born a New Yorker. You left New York in the late 70s and made aliyahs. Thousands of Jews from around the world have done over the decades. You became a citizen through the Jewish right of return. And you've been deeply immersed in the effort to connect Palestinians and Israelis in your adopted homeland. Why? Well, I came here 45 years ago with the deep belief that in order for Israel to be the democratic nation state of the Jewish people, it could not rule over another people living in this land. That the Palestinian people who were under Israel's control had to be free, had to live a life of dignity and respect, and had to have the opportunity to live in peace in their own state next to Israel. I've always believed that this was, in fact, the Zionist solution. If one believes that Israel needs to be the democratic nation-state of the Jewish people, then this is the formula to reaching there. Unfortunately, in the past years, I lost hope that there was a viable two-state solution, and I was searching for other solutions, together with Ali and other Palestinian friends and colleagues. But you know what? All of a sudden, because of this war that started on October 7th with the atrocities committed by Hamas, the two-state solution is back in front of us now. And even many Palestinians and many Israelis I know who over the past years have been saying, let's try to figure out how to have a one-state solution, are now looking at the way that we're living here and saying, yeah, we need to have these two states. Palestinians need to have their independence, their freedom, their dignity, and the Israelis do as well. And as Ali said so eloquently, it begins with the basic mutual recognition of the right of everyone living between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea for the same rights. This, I think, is a starting principle for the new page that has to happen when this horrible war in Gaza is over. We must recognize that we all have the same right to the same rights. And if we can do that, and if we can have new voices stating that, we can find a way of building bridges between these two peoples that will enable to build a peace of dignity, a peace of respect, a peace which will be real, not based on walls and fences, but based on cooperation and understanding each other. There's a long road ahead of us. It's not something, there is no peace now. There is peace that we have to build together. We have to start working on it now. I understand your answer, but I'm wondering if the events of October 7th have pushed equally as robustly in another direction entirely, whether right now the eliminationists don't have the upper hand. Your Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, seems to be working on a very different wavelength from your own. He's been one of the great antagonists in modern history to the two-state solution. For sure. I think we have to recognize, though, that Mr. Netanyahu is going to be soon in the past. 
there is no way that Netanyahu is going to survive the responsive, the direct responsibility he had for the failures of October 7th. And when I say the failures of October 7th, I don't just mean the military and intelligence failures, but the conceptual failure that we've been living by since 2009 that Netanyahu has fostered is the belief that we can occupy another people for 56 years and expect to have peace, or that we can lock 2 million people in a territory like Gaza with 80% poverty and expect them to be quiet. This is the falsehood that we've been living with, that we can remove the Palestinian issue from our agenda and expect to have a normal life here. It's true that Trump came along and helped him build the Abraham Accords and we had peace with some Arab nations. But the Palestinian issue didn't go away. And in fact, it blew up in our face on October 7th. And if we don't begin to deal with that reality that there are 7 million Palestinian Arabs and 7 million Israeli Jews living on the same land that we all call our homeland, then we will just see this as another horrible chapter in the lives that we've been living for the past 100 years of death and destruction. It's true that the Israeli people are moving away from this idea that we can reach out and have peace. But I believe very strongly that the day after tomorrow, whenever that is, and hopefully it will be soon, we will have what I've been calling our Belfast moment, which wasn't a moment in Belfast, it was a process. But there came a time after hundreds of years of mutual destruction that the people of Northern Ireland stood up and said, no more. And while the peace in Northern Ireland is not perfect, it's far from perfect, they're not killing each other anymore. And if we Israelis and Palestinians can make that stride together and stand up after this horrific war, let's face it, for the Israeli Jews, what happened on October 7th was the biggest trauma since the Holocaust. And without comparison for the Palestinians, what's happening now in Gaza is the biggest trauma since 1948. They are experiencing Nakba once again. And from this trauma, we must rise up our people, our young people in particular, and stand up and say no more. And it's with people like Ali who give me hope that there are people on the Palestinian side who will do that, who will stand up and say, no, we don't want the leadership that we've had that's repeated the same mistakes over and over again, believing that we will get liberation through an armed struggle. But it's voices like Ali who say, through non-violence, we will reach out to our enemy and we will make peace with them because they will see that we are not threatening them. We want to share this land in peace. And I believe that the Israeli public will respond to that message when there are Palestinian leaders. I don't know who our leaders are going to be, not in Israel nor in Palestine, but we will have a new generation of leaders. And all of those horrible leaders on both sides who have led us to where we are today are no longer worthy of being our leaders, and they will pay the price for their failures. Ali Abu Awad, how did you first hear about Hamas's assault on Israel? And did it occur to you right from that first moment that something very different was going on, that it wasn't just another assault, another attack, another small indignity of one people against another, but something very different. The level of the attack was a surprise for me, but the attack itself was not a surprise because this is the consequences of what has been happening to Gaza people and in the West Bank. What the world expects from such people living in such conditions and, as Dr. Baskin mentioned, to do? That's number one. Number two, all what has been happening in the political level, in the grassroots level, and in the intervening of the world in our conflict definitely will lead to this reality. That was 
an expectation from my side. Number three, I do believe that whatever has happened and what is happening until now can be healed. But healing cannot come through good intentions. We're calling for immediate ceasefire, but this is not the big goal. The bigger goal is ending the conflict itself, not just ending the event. And the world is concentrating now to end the event without putting enough effort to end the conflict itself, which is the machine that brings all of these actions. And finally, with the failure of political leadership, with lack of commitment from the grassroots toward a political vision, but also action, daily action to develop and change people's life conditions, not just transforming their hearts and mind. And with the right engagement and partnership with the global community, with countries led by governments or people, we can provide a structure here, a platform that can allow each one of us to identify with nonviolent solution. We have to change our strategies as well. I'm telling you, we failed. We activists failed. But this failure is not a judgment to promote despair among ourselves, but it's a big lesson that we all have to learn that what can be happen in a different way. The supporters of both sides in this conflict are pulling strings behind the scenes. Both people who support the armed struggle of the Palestinian people and people who support Israel's continued ability to defend itself as a state are over their shoulders, whispering in their ear, speaking publicly. What should they be telling them? What brings the day closer when some new solution starts to begin? Because right now, we don't seem very close to the end. The assault is now moving toward southern Gaza, where hundreds of thousands of refugees have moved. It sounds like there's still a lot of fighting and a lot of dying that's still in front of us. What do the people who have the ear of Hamas, who have the ear of the leadership in the West Bank, who have the ear of the Netanyahu government, what should they be telling them? I think you're very right in the assessment that we have a lot more of death and destruction in front of us. Unfortunately, I've been negotiating with Hamas for 17 years. I've met Hamas people face-to-face. I've talked to them. I've tried to find ways that we could have a modus vivendi where we could actually live side by side, understanding that it was Netanyahu who decided that Hamas should stay in leadership in Gaza, and he's facilitated that, enabled that, and even had it funded. And as long as that was our reality and there was no real peace process proposal on our agenda, I thought it'd be best to search for a way where we could have a long-term ceasefire with Hamas. October 7th was a breaking point for me in my understanding. And I think that Hamas is the ultimate evil enemy. Not everyone who believes in Hamas, but the people who are leading Hamas, these irresponsible leaders who have brought this tragedy on the Palestinian people, 
can no longer be partners that we can seek to find a way to live in peace with. And I can't imagine a scenario where this war ends, where these leaders of Hamas, the political and military leaders of Hamas, are still alive and running Gaza. I think that there is a just cause for Israel to seek to end the ability of Hamas to rule Gaza and to threaten Israel. All that being said, what's happening to the Palestinian people in Gaza is a horrendous tragedy, a humanitarian disaster. And Without much doubt, war crimes are being committed by Israel. I don't know how you do the two things together, but I know that Hamas has to be destroyed as a ruling body in Gaza. The hostages must be brought home by Israel, and that's going to require further negotiations with Hamas and Israel releasing Palestinian prisoners. And at the same time, as Ali said, we must have an international resolve to end the Israeli occupation, to bring about the creation of a Palestinian state. The Palestinian Authority needs to go through deep reforms. Corruption has to be eliminated. Palestinians have to have the right to vote for a new legitimate government that represents them. The international community is going to have to be involved to rebuild Gaza and build the Palestinian economy and to force Israel into a regional architecture of stability, security, economic development, dealing with energy and water and people basic human needs. It has to be done regionally, not bilaterally Israeli-Palestinian. We need the support of the international community. The United States needs to lead the way by recognizing the state of Palestine along with the other OECD nations. I've had enough of 30 years of talking about a two-state solution while the international community only recognizes one of those states. If we want to defeat the idea of Hamas, we have to enable the Palestinian people to believe that the occupation will end, that they will have independence and dignity. They will be able to live in a state of their own. And that needs to be done by action, not by words. The state of Palestine must be granted full membership in the United Nations. And the world needs to be serious about forcing Israel to end its occupation, to end its settlement building and expansion, to prohibit the violence of settlers against Palestinians. And Israel needs to withdraw to its recognized international borders that will negotiate with the Palestinian leadership, whoever they are. And we need the help of the world to do this. We cannot do it by ourselves. It has to be a global effort to make this conflict come to an end. Uh, but the two-state solution, you've talked about 30 years, Gershon Baskin, half of that time, half of that time, Benjamin Netanyahu or one of his partners was the prime minister of Israel. And he was, while agreeing outwardly to the continuation, at least early on, agreeing outwardly to the continuation of the Oslo process, he was actively undermining it as well. During all that 30 years, since the fateful handshake in the Rose Garden in Washington, D.C., more and more Israelis were being moved into what was presumed to be the largest significant contiguous chunk of a future Palestinian state. The conditions for a two-state solution were declining every day of those last 30 years. Is it possible to turn back that clock? Has too much bad blood been spilled on both sides? And I need to hear from you on this, Ali, as well. You just heard Gershon supporting the process and saying that October 7th brings the two-state solution back into focus. Is there an appetite for it in 
Beit Hanun and Rafa and Janine in the various uh, population centers of the Palestinian lands? As I told you, people focus on events, but they don't focus on the conflict. As long as we deal with events and not dealing with the core of the problem, we will not have any solution. Number two, for any agreement to happen, we need an environment. This environment has been never created. We need a responsible political leadership that is committed to a nonviolent solution by action and not just by a show at the United Nation. Number two, we need a national plan for both sides toward that vision of two-state solution. Number three, we need to get rid of the typical model of two-state solution. Based on that vision of two-state solution, we need a new political management that both identities can be served. Because the typical model of two-state solution sounds impossible today because of the geographic, demographic reality. And I'm not sure it's enough just to both sides. And finally, we need a committed movement with enough commitment and resources to create that environment for solution to happen. So my focus as an activist, as a nonviolence leader today in the practice of nonviolence before the vision. We need to agree about the path toward that vision because people are divided also over, even peace builders, divided over vision. There are people who do advocacy for one state. There are others for two states. There are others for equal right with one. There are typical models, but I think the core is two-state solution. We have to advocate for that and not to wait for the Messiah, the Savior, there is not going to be a savior. It's not about the who, it's about what. What structure that we are creating to invite people to be part of and who is important, but it's not one-man show. We need a political system that led by politicians who see the other side, but also take responsibility for their own side. This has never happened before. And with the best cooperation and a just role by the international community toward us, I still believe today, as the Western world also engaged in this conflict, I think they disrespect our humanity. And when I say our humanity, it's not just the Palestinian humanity. It's also the Jewish humanity. Supporting one side at the expense of the other side, this is a disrespect for all the human beings of this land. We want the world to be pro-solution, not pro-those or those, even though we are not equal, and this is a fact. So we need to create that level of equality where people can feel the difference. People look at Gaza today and they do with all of their judgment, but what model that we have created before to prevent and to prove that peace is possible. There is zero alternative to that. We need to start creating alternative systems on the ground to show the success of nonviolence by practice, not by fancy five-star peace conferences abroad, and not over hummus and hugs with good intentions. People are dying here. We need a strategic action for solution with the leadership and the movement of the grassroots. Ali, did you, did your side in this question, in this debate, in this struggle, lose a lot of Jewish allies on October 7th? The people that you need to convince 
inside Israel today who might have been willing to listen to your argument? Are they in no mood to listen to that argument right now because of the Hamas attack? Listen, there is always consequences of attacks and events and violence. We lose even Palestinian allies because people are desperate. People are fearful more than any time else. Watching thousands of kids being killed this way and women and civilians, innocent people, watching also attacks and kidnapped of others and taking mothers and kids. It's a disaster for both sides. And definitely people are led by emotions. Not everyone is a leader. In general, people are followers with good leadership. And I always have been saying that to build a bridge, you don't need the majority. You don't need million people. You need a committed, responsible, professional leaders who will build a bridge that millions can pass through. And the shifting of this land is amazing. It can happen through one day. I remember in Oslo, we were throwing stones on soldiers. Next day after the signing of Oslo Peace Initiatives, we gave flowers to soldiers because it's all about emotions, but also it's about hope. We need a mechanism that can shift the majority of both sides towards that. But this shift now is very hard because we still advocate for fantasy vision without a plan, without a commitment, without resources, and without partnership with the world. For this to happen, we need to invest a lot. And I have been saying that always. The Jewish fear is our biggest enemy as Palestinians. It's not the Jews themselves. If there is a step toward my freedom, it's not going to be through Jewish bodies. It has to be through Jewish hearts. But also, this is not enough. We need a responsible Jewish committed movement, Israeli movement, that will stand for the Palestinian right, not at the expense of their security. Because the minute they do that, it opens Palestinian hearts and minds as well. And it's the best way that Israelis will secure themselves. So freedom for Palestinian without Jewish security, it's not going to happen. Jewish security, Israeli security without Palestinian freedom, it will never happen. And even if Israel succeed with Hamas today and they win and they push Hamas, destroy Hamas, what are you expecting? Their kids, their mothers, they are part of my people. There will be another movement will grow. Let's focus in the core of the problem that no one will have an excuse anymore to justify killing and violence. You're listening to On Shifting Ground, produced by World Affairs in San Francisco. After the break, when the fighting in Gaza ends, is it possible to build a sustainable peace and a two-state solution? If you missed any part of this episode or want to catch up on other international stories, Download our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This does have an end. As hard as it is to imagine, this does have an end. At least a first end, where the guns fall silent for a time. What's job one in getting this thing to where you both need it to go when this stage in the fighting stops? There is always a day after. I talk about the day after tomorrow because I think it'll be longer than the day after. 
But there will be an end to this war. There will be an end to the killing that's taking place right now. But the memory of the last period will be with us. This is another chapter in our collective memories that will stay with us forever. And I don't think that we Israelis or Palestinians should forget our past. We shouldn't try to rewrite the narrative. But we have to have a period of time where we have new leaders, young people, who are going to say we need to look forward, not just backwards. We'll remember what happened to us. We will remember what the other side did to us. It'll take us a very long time to forgive them, if ever, for what they did to us, but we need to begin to look forward to the day after tomorrow and to build a new future together. That's our challenge here. We have our past. We have our memories. We have our narratives. The question is, can we begin writing a new narrative, which is different, a new page that looks forward, that brings us to a place where we can actually share this land? Ali, I'd like to hear what your thoughts are concerning the rest of the Arab world. Before October 7th, it looked like a lot of countries were ready to make deals with Israel, make peace with Israel, begin to make a regular relationship, and no longer worry about the future of the Palestinian lands or the Palestinian people. They had set that issue aside. Can you rely upon them as a partner? And earlier, Dr. Baskin talked about the essential role of the United States going forward. Is there enough goodwill among your people to accept the United States as a party in any sort of negotiation about the future? If I can rely on Jewish people as partners, definitely I can rely on Arabs as partners. And when you say Arab, you say whether you mean the political leadership of the Arab or the Arab nation, because there is a big difference. I think the normalization approach has what was happening with the governments more than the people. And Israel will never be able to normalize its relation with the Arab as long as the Palestinian living in this disaster and these conditions, because the core and the gate for Israel to the whole Arab world and to the whole international community is the Palestinian issue. If the Palestinian issue will be settled, we will definitely encourage all the normalization with Israel based on a collective Middle East normalization, not just Israel and the Arab. That's number one. So the Palestinian file has to be the core file on the table. Number two, yes, we have failure in our political leadership because we left behind. The Arabs are tired of us or the Arabs are not committed enough not just because of our bad leading, but it's also, I'm not sure that the Arab has been politically helpful for the many last years because we also, part of their systems, part of their life, but I'm not sure that we are part of their political vision for themselves and for their people. And I think there are some Arab countries are fearing the solution here. Because if solution will happen here, in my opinion, it's going to be the best democracy in the Middle East. And this will put the spot in some dictator countries that are dictating their own people. And they don't want this successful model. Finally, the U.S., it depends on what U.S. role they decide. If the U.S. decide a just role toward this conflict and the solution, definitely. And I always say, Most of the U.S. people 
doesn't know what's the problem. The other problem in the U.S. that people are divided, divided by opinion and acts toward one side at the expense of the other. And my invitation to Jews and Muslims in the U.S. is to be pro-solution, to push their government to take the side of solution and not just to pick up one side at the expense of the other. Gershon Baskin, I'm thinking of two young men. I guess if, if it makes it easier, they can both be 21 years old. One is in a settlement in the West Bank. One is in the adjacent existing Arab community next to which that settlement was built. I've been to those places. These men have lived lives where they've seen the hopefulness that you both describe defeated at every turn. And if that young man says, why should my parents who came here and helped build this community, why should they leave and go back to Israel proper? We can't trust the Arabs. And that young man in the Arab town, often an Arab town that's been there for many centuries, says, yes, they told us we were going to make peace, that we were going to have stability, that we were going to have a state. But all I see is highways and dug up olive fields and walls and barriers and checkpoints. I don't trust these people. I'm never going to trust them. My life has only gotten worse. As we just heard Ali saying, those young people are the future of your dreamed-of solution. They're citizens of this future political order. But where they are right now is they're not great timber for building this future political entity. I think you're, you're very right. They are timber for enlightening the flames and making the flames grow stronger. Look, at the core of Israeli society and the core of Palestinian society, it's almost a mirror image. There's about 30%, I estimate, on both sides who will be opposed to any peace agreement regardless of what it says. They don't want to live in peace. They want to keep the conflict going on. They both have their own beliefs. A lot of it is, is fed by deep religious beliefs, messianic beliefs. But there's a core of about 30% on both sides who will oppose any kind of peace. Maybe it's those two young people, maybe not. But that leaves us with a potential majority of 70% on both sides, in both Israel and in Palestine, who could support peace if they believed it was real. We are going to need to learn the lessons of the failures of the Oslo peace process. It was a colossal failure. We Israelis and Palestinians signed six agreements and then breached all six of those agreements substantively. There were many more breaches of the agreements than parts of the agreements that were actually implemented. One of the changes that we're going to have to recognize that need to be made very early on in the process is, for instance, dealing with education and incitement. We don't educate our children, not in Israel and not in Palestine, to live in peace. If we are going to have a genuine peace process, that's one of the places we're going to have to start with. Because what we teach our children is the reflection of the values of our society. And when we examine what we teach our children, we don't teach them to live in a future of peace. We're going to need to change that. There's no reason why every Israeli student shouldn't learn Arabic from kindergarten and why every Palestinian student shouldn't learn Hebrew from kindergarten. 
we're going to need to confront incitement. And much of the incitement comes from the religious communities in both societies. If our religious leaders preach incitement and hatred, we are not going to succeed. We are going to have to confront these things to create a process that will make those two young people who live next to each other in the occupied West Bank and an Israeli illegal Israeli settlement and a Palestinian community next door understand that when we talk about peace, our intentions are genuine and not just a lot of hot air of what Ali called these conferences that take place in five-star hotels. We don't need confidence-building measures. We don't need confidence-building measures. We need to build confidence through real actions that demonstrate that we are serious about living in peace this time and not just signing documents on pieces of paper that we have no intention of implementing the commitments that we take upon ourselves. This is where the change has to happen. Ali, what's the pitch that you'd make to that young Palestinian fella who has abundant reasons not to believe that a two-state solution is possible? Where would you begin that conversation to turn him around? As I said, it's about identity. I think the turning point is to believe that nonviolence can be the best carrier to any vision that will guarantee people life, dignity, and freedom. The first shift that has to happen is the full understanding of nonviolence activism. Because we're still, many people think that nonviolence is to give up. It's actually the opposite. It's the activation of our humanity in a strategic, political way. It's not to give up and just kiss each other. Even that we're not doing. So that's number one. And number two, is to focus with young people, not to just transform their mind and heart. You know, one, one of the biggest mistakes, we take young people to abroad, to spend some time with Israelis. Israelis go back to a country that provide economy, dignity, education, and they, our young people go back to refugee camps. So their life conditions is not sustained. Their life condition is not promoting sustainable system to follow education. I definitely agree that education is the key. My movement is creating now nonviolence labs in some schools. And when I say nonviolence labs, it's not a summer camp once a year. It's a sustained system with trained teacher to provide nonviolence tools to deal with problems and to deal with violence and to deal with challenges. The young people in Palestine has no vision for any normal future because they have zero normal conditions in their reality. What opportunities that we are providing to them? They become people that can shift to violence easily. So understanding where violence comes from gives me hope because these young people are not provoking violence because they hate the other. They don't even know the other to hate him but they have lost any belief of anything because lack of opportunity. Violence comes from emotions, not from ideology. That's what I'm trying to say, and this is what we are trying to do, changing their life conditions, providing new tools, new hope, and with a plan that they are committed to, it's going to change the whole status quo. Look at my leaders. Who speak to young people? Not Abbas, not others. They feel ignored by their own political leadership and they are tortured 
by the occupier. So by the end of the day, they grab a knife, they go to kill themselves before killing others. It's a suicide. Why? Not because they are sure that this is going to destroy Israel, but they have lost their fear to die. Can you imagine what does that mean when people lose their fear to die? It means one thing. They lost their connection to life because there is no life. This is what we need to change. Ah, but you used to be that young guy when you were in prison for participating in the Intifada and a Palestinian peace activist came and visited you in your cell. Would you have been open to that pitch that we can change all of this and actually live side by side in peace and prosperity with Israelis, the people who put you in that cell? I have never imagined myself, even when my mother was beating up in front of my eyes by security Israeli officers, I have never imagined myself hurting a human being. If you would have given me a choice, and I was trained, I was trained in weapon, in Kalashnikov, I couldn't shoot a human being. I couldn't. And there is many reasons to justify my act. Enough to say that I have the right to resist the occupier. But this is not about this. I was led by emotion. Yes, I was one of those. And you know what? I'm still a fighter, but this is another path that I choose. And the other thing is, without that past, I will not be able to say what I'm saying today. Because the prices that my family has paid for this conflict allow me, with my sorrow, it's this way, allow me to say painful things to my people. Don't think for a minute that recognizing the Jewish identity is easy for Palestinians. We're not in a place of equality. And this is a big question. What kind of Israel that Israelis want Palestinians to recognize? What is the Israeli border? What is the Israeli constitution? There are many core things here that if we clarify that, believe me, young people will be the first leader because they have tried everything. I tried everything. It doesn't work. And nonviolence is not just that because violence doesn't work or didn't work. Nonviolence is the celebration of our existence in this land. Nonviolence is the only option because I say to young people, you are not responsible about the past. Get rid of the past. Don't forget it. That's fine. How can Jewish people forget the Holocaust? That's fine. But don't traumatize others because of your trauma. That's the big issue. You are responsible about the future. Participate in a, an approach that will promote normal life for you, not a grave for yourself. But words cannot be enough. We need actions, as Dr. Baskin said. We need a plan with action, with commitment, so people can even see the difference between the fantasy of peace and the reality of peace. What about on the Israeli side of the question, Gershon Baskin? Israelis on the street, and I've talked to them, may tell you that they yearn for something different. They may speak out of goodwill and talk about individual Palestinians that they know and work with and like. But when they go to the polls, they have sent men like Ben Gvir, the a minister in the current Netanyahu government, who has a diametrically opposed vision of the future of the state from yours. When they go to the polls, they vote their fears as much as their 
confidence in the kind of Israeli future that you've been discussing during this program? We have not had an Israeli leader who inspires hope to the Israeli people in a very long time, probably since the days of Yitzhak Rabin, who made a fundamental change in his own personal ideology from being a man of war to becoming a man of peace. And all the leaders that we've had since Rabin, led mostly by Netanyahu, those who has led us during these years, who tried to remove the Palestinian issue from the agenda and told the Israelis they can live in peace without dealing with the Palestinians and, and having a hope of peace with the Palestinians, led us to believe, the Israeli people, to believe that we could reach out to the Emirates and to Bahrain and Morocco and maybe even Saudi Arabia and live in peace and bring the Palestinians eventually along to accept their secondary status of being subjects of the Israeli occupation. But that's not the reality, and October 7th wakes us up to a new reality. I don't see anyone on the Israeli horizon right now within the political arena who inspires any kind of hope. But I assure you they will come because political vacuums never exist. They're always filled by other people. And sure, we'll have our Ben Veers, but if we look at the polls deeply and understand where Israelis are and what Israelis are thinking and hoping for, Ben Veer is the opposite of what Israelis want. Ben Veer promises us conflict for Forever. Ben Veer promises us death, destruction, and violence forever. And the Israeli people, particularly the young people who don't want to live in an environment of fear and hatred, the young people who have built the high tech economy of Israel want to live in a very different reality. We will have those new leaders. They will emerge perhaps from the people who led the 40 weeks of protest against the Netanyahu government. There is growing steam within Israel today to call for the ousting of Netanyahu immediately. The argument between most Israelis is, does Netanyahu have to go now or does he have to go at the end of the war? But the generation of the leadership of Netanyahu is coming to an end. And the question of what will replace it will very much depend on the kind of voices we hear from our neighborhood, from Palestinians. If we could hear loud and clear the voice of people like Ali Abu Awad within Israeli society, we would have deep changes within Israel. Uh, right now, the Israelis hear the voices of Hamas and Islamic Jihad in the voices of radicalism and the voices of my old interlocutor, Razi Hamad, who called for the annihilation of Israel. Those are the voices that Israel's, Israelis are hearing, and that will only strengthen the voices of Ben Gvir within Israel. We need to hear more practical, realistic voices like Ali. I'm hoping that people like Marwan Baruti, who is the most popular politician within Palestine, that Marwan from prison will raise a voice like the voice of Nelson Mandela did when he was in prison for 26 years. We need to hear people who are respected by the Palestinian public speaking the words of peace and reconciliation and nonviolence as the way forward. And if they hear those voices, we will hear those voices in Israel and they will be loud and strong and they will be the voices of tomorrow of Israel. Ali, can you look ahead to the later part of your own life and see a Palestine that works the way you're dreaming of? where you have uh, easy transfer between the cities in the territory, where you have a capital and an elected government and a currency maybe even. I mean, who knows uh, what this future place looks like? Do you dream about it? I work for it. It's not just a dream. There is a say, dreams is not something that you see when you sleep. Dreams is something that doesn't make you sleep until they become true. 
I serve that vision. I work for that vision. And even if I spend my entire life and the rest of my life doing what I'm doing, I choose to die doing this if I couldn't live it. So practicing living the vision every day, serving it, it's the celebration of my humanity by choosing nonviolence. And this is what I say to people who will say, you're just one person or you will never see this peace in your life. You know what? I was born for it to serve it, to serve that vision because others will follow. Our kids will follow that. And we have no other way. You don't need to be a Mandela to realize that. There is no other fact that this conflict cannot be solved violently. Never. Number two, this is the only way to solve it. And number three, none of us is going to give up who he is or his belonging to this land. So we need just to be clever, more than peaceful, to manage that in a political system. And finally, yes, I do have pain. It's challenging. It's hard. It's not easy at all But because we don't live the fantasy of peace. We face the challenges of the conflict every day. And for us to be ready to face that is not just the practice in a spiritual peace prayers. It's the practice of our identity as a human being at the first place. Well, I hope you live, both live to see what you're looking for because there has to be a better future than the one the two people are living right now. In my visits to the place, in my reporting from the place, it's been one of the tensest places on earth, and this is even during peaceful times. And I think Growing up and living your whole life out in a place like that is just asking people for a lot. So I, I hope for the best for Israel and Palestine. Luxembourg Peace Prize Laureate Ali Abu Awad and Luxembourg Peace Prize Laureate Gershon Baskin. Great good luck to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure having this conversation, and it's always great to see and talk to my good friend Ali. Thank you, Dr. Gershon. Be safe. listening to On Shifting Ground, produced in partnership with KQED, with funding from listeners like you. Today's episode was produced by Sienna Barnes and Andrew Stelzer. It was mixed and mastered by Matteo Schimp. Additional production and engineering were provided by Rob Spate. KQED's Jim Bennett is our technical supervisor. Jared Sport is our executive producer. Philip Yun is CEO of World Affairs. Our music is from Blue Dot Sessions. I'm Ray Suarez. Thanks for listening. 